Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzezemski. Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, sitting in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe, joined again with my by my wingman, sort of temporary wingman, Robert Hutton. Robert, welcome to the luxurious corner booth again. Hey, Deacon, how are you doing? Well, we're gonna we have one more really great guest that we want to get in here in this luxurious corner booth to talk about our families. Right? Yeah, the only thing that worries me is another lawyer. See, and so now I'm surrounded yeah. by lawyers. <laughs> You're a lawyer. <laughs> Helen is a lawyer, so I'm just I'm a little worried. I'm going to have to start billing by the quarter hour or something. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I know we're going to have a very informed discussion because we have Helen Alvarez here. And Helen is a professor of law at George Mason University here in Washington, D.C. Right? We've moved the luxurious corner booth to Washington for a little temporary visit. Uh, so she's a professor of law there, right? Yes. Uh, specializing in family and religion. Yes. Those are big topics right now, aren't they? They are. They're, they're big. They're fabulous. Uh, one is family law. One is law and religion. But frankly, they have come into one great cataclysmic collision oh, right Oh, I know. Now, right, right now. Been forced in that. We, we see yes. it everywhere, don't we? Yeah. And also, you're a consultant to the Pontifical Council for the Laity and the Holy See's United Nations office. So you get around. Yeah, yeah. A little, little busy. All right. Well, that's great, though. So it sounds like you're the person we can ask some questions to. And I think you're going to help us out a little bit here. I think we were going to talk at, uh, in this little short bit of time we have. We're going to talk about, I think... Uh, that all the things that are going on today, especially Catholic moral teaching, you know, it's taken a beating, obviously. I mean, you're well aware that uh, it seems like the Catholics are always on the wrong side, quote-unquote, of the, of the world's arguments about human sexuality, about uh, life in terms of, like, when it begins, about uh, um, all these different things that we are involved, especially in family life and, and religious freedom. We always seem to be, uh, according to the world, on the wrong side of things, and yet... Mm-hmm. You are you. You have a lot of knowledge of statistics, the way things work. You've done a lot of research, and there's a lot of stuff out there that actually might tell a different story than that. Mm-hmm. So we thought we'd bring you here, and and sort of like <laughs> tell this the kind story. of yeah, exactly tell yeah. tell that story. Help us understand, you know, maybe where where the where the Catholic Church sits in terms of morality, but then where that sits in terms of the world's opinion and what the reality of all that is. So that's sure. a lot. Yeah. I'll just say this go. Is, yeah, you just say go. Actually, let me just <laughs> yep. say for, for people who are listening and for any place you might like to stop me, that there's a couple points I would make under that, and I'll, I'll tell you what they are in order because I am a lawyer, right? Oh, okay. so, very good, very good. Uh, the first one is I, you, you identified a process where the world accuses and the church mm-hmm. responds, and I'd like to talk about that first. Okay. Then I want to talk about some of the leading trends on family and how it is that what the church has been teaching for so long, but particularly with, with great warmth since really the 1960s. Right. Gaudium et Spes from Vatican II, and then a raft of documents from John Paul II, just enormous amounts, followed up with some gorgeous and detailed stuff by Benedict, and then followed up with some heartfelt uh, and truthful and worldwide heard stuff from Francis. Yeah. So, But first, with regard to that process, I have to tell you, you know, as a person who's I don't know. Maybe I'm a little aggressive. I am a lawyer. I really, it bothers me that the church has this marvelous stuff, but it's almost as if we wait until it's time to respond to an accusation. Always on the defensive. Yes. And um, part of my whole life, part of my shtick, if you will, is going out first, hopefully with some leadership to say, look at all this beautiful stuff we have. And um, 
And, for instance, at the USCCB, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, which is a um, you know, policy body of the U.S. bishops in Washington, they have all of these uh, agenda items that they bring before Congress. They have these programs that they bring to the dioceses and the states. And they're full of positive, positive things to support young people, to support women, to support families, to support a really healthy, wholesome uh, notion of human sexuality that, that is neither embarrassed nor slimy. Right. It's just the beautiful God-given way that it was made. Um, and I, it really bothers me that we don't come out and with a big smile on our face and with great confidence offer this. You know, I think Catholics, and I see that myself sometimes because the world, when you turn on the TV, when you go to the movies, it is so anti the Catholic view of family, whether it's you know marriage between a man and a woman or abortion or sexuality reserved for marriage. And you get to where you're almost ashamed. You're not ashamed. I mean, that's kind of the mentality. You almost feel like you're apologizing for the faith rather than just saying this is really the way it should be. Yeah. Well, here's I mean, the other dynamic, and it, it, it really gets me, too, because we get accused of, quote, being obsessed with the right. sex issues. And what part of the dynamic that you're talking about is the world is utterly obsessed with sex. I mean, yeah. there's... I'm going to diverge from it. There's a Monty Python um, skit called The News for Parrots. Well, of course, there's almost no news about parrots, right? So the newscaster on Monty Python will say, there was a pileup on the interstate. No parrots were involved. Right. <laughs> and I have begun to think about the New York Times this way. They say, you know, there was an explosion in the East Atlantic. No transgender people were involved. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it is the amount of time that the newspaper spends talking about sexual issues. And it's not because there isn't suffering, right? We know LGBT people have suffered. We know transgender people have suffered. That's not the point. The point is they talk about it constantly. They throw it in people's faces. They say, if you haven't adopted the opinion that we just adopted five minutes ago, you're bigoted. Um, They say sexual expression is the soul of all human freedom. It it is at the core. It's the height of life's happiness. There is nothing else above and beyond that. There's nothing even beside it. And so the church ends up, you know, and then they they do things like legally trying to force, you know, the little sisters of the poor Mm -hmm. to provide abortion and contraception and so forth. And so we end up in a responsive mode Mm. to that. Um, Yes, we have to respond, but we have to be wise as serpents and we have to flip it around. And you know, Helen, I know you're an attorney and I've represented people before, like people that were in sort of prostitution and, and things like that. And they're, you know, these lives are so miserable. These people are so depressed. I mean, people that live, okay, put, you know, dive right into the sexual revolution and, you know, they're, they're miserable. Oh, and And I can just, we can tell you, everybody knows these stories, right? That they talk about sexual expression being the best possible thing a girl could do as long as there's no baby. And then you meet the girls. Right. And they are in grief. after an uncommitted sexual evening. You uh, meet a girl who's just moved in with her boyfriend, and the first thing she says is, oh, you know, we don't really need to get married because it's almost like marriage. And then about 20 minutes later in the conversation, she says, if he does not give me a ring by Christmas, we are going to have a conversation. (laughs) And you know they're wounded. You know, it's absolutely ridiculous to ignore this human experience. 
So the church does need to go out to the world with the beauty and wholesomeness of human sexuality. And you know, Helen, what really bothers me today is the whole issue with adoption. I understand, you know, we have the new Supreme Court decision with respect to uh, allowing same-sex couples to marry. But, you know, now we get to a position where we have a child for adoption and we can't, quote, discriminate between a, a heterosexual traditional couple with a mother and a father to adopt a baby versus two men or two women that want to adopt a baby. And I think... That is really sad. We can't even say that under natural law, it is better for a child to have a mother and a father. If you get me started on the Supreme Court same-sex marriage decision on Obergefell, we will be here through all three meals. But but I will say one thing about that. I, I wrote an amicus brief in that case, and Justice Kennedy completely ignored all history, all science, and every single Supreme Court opinion ever written on the family from 1870 to 1983, each of which said the state's interest in marriage is its interest in people giving birth to children and taking care of them. It's not an anti-gay people expression. It is a pro-child expression. And what Justice Kennedy did was utterly ignore children in the definition of marriage, Right. right? Say they are intrinsically no part. It's just love. And the problem is, well, if two people can love one another, well, why not three people really love right. one another? There's a strong argument historically for polygamy than there is for two men getting married. Or two I'm going to make a married. prediction and say that as incredibly stupid, and I use that word in a technical sense, <laughs> as incredibly <laughs> stupid as the Obergefell decision was, the, the same-sex marriage opinion, utterly without law, without reason, without science, and, and all of that can be demonstrated. They will not, in my view, this is my prediction, allow polygamy, even though Obergefell's language would have permitted it. Why? Because they are so anxious to preserve the sense that the Obergefell opinion um, had sense. They are so crazy to preserve same-sex marriage as if it has legitimacy that they will not allow polygamy to tarnish it. Well, we're going to have you back on. We're going to see if that prediction Holds true because you may be right. It's hard to predict what they're going to do and what they're going to say. But do you do you think that decision though that they were essentially? And I don't want to pick on the Supreme Court. I guess we all. Oh, we let's can. do. Let's do right. I, I figured you'd want to do that. <laughs> but but do you think that this is a, a sign of the times? Has the damage already been done with the argument you talked about? I don't. I don't like the fact that the Catholic Church is always on the defense. It's always behind the eight ball. Never gets out there in front. But the reality is. If you try to get out in front now, it's, is it, I don't want to say is it too late because Lord God Almighty can fix anything uh, if we have faith in him and allow him to use us as his instruments. But the reality is it's difficult now because those seeds have been planted for years to the point where little kids are growing up, you know, and watching Disney shows with that kid yes. right next door that lives a certain lifestyle. Some people actually think that that particular population is 20 or 30 percent of the right. general population when in fact... What is it, 1% or 2 or 3%? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's arguably very small. You're going to love this because I'm going to answer your question in a way that segues back to your first question. There you I go. Think. We're going to pretend we had this all scripted out. I am a veteran of the movement for life. We have here also another lawyer who has worked on capital punishment. That's right. Robert's been doing both, a lot of that. Both of us lived and worked at a time when everybody told us that no one would ever credibly uh, receive an argument for pro-life in either of those arenas. Mm-hmm. I also lived through the 1980s when the divorce rate was over 50%. Out-of-wedlock birth rate went from, say, 18% up into the 30s. No-fault divorce was seen to be you know, the salvation of women for whom marriage was some miserable thing, supposedly. 
And everybody told us there was no way that anyone would ever think that our positions on life or on family or marriage would make sense again. And wow. here we are today. When I entered the pro-life movement, people said to me, why are you, why are you going into an absolute loser of a movement? Why are you speaking irrational words? But we persisted. And the conversations have come round. And through the 1990s, the data began to build and the evidence began to grow that the public was seeing. It wasn't just that we had the ultrasound when it came to pro-life right. and abortion, but we began to have all of this research data coming out of sociology, law and econ, um, uh, psychology, showing that people were, were terribly unhappy with the situation of easy divorce, of cohabitation, um, of non-marital pregnancies were having their effect on the children. And we really began to see that the data now gave voice to and explained Catholic doctrine in a way we had not been able to explain it before. That's beautiful. And uh, see, you're so good. How she got that back all the way to where we need to be again. And we're going to talk more about that on the other side of this break. Before we do that, I want to remind folks at home, we've got a great website, www.thecatholiccafe.com. Also, I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email, deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. We'll be back with Helen Alvarez right after this. I'm Bess Drzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. At the very start of his gospel, St. John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A few verses later, he tells us, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. The word that St. John speaks of is none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So often when we hear the phrase, Word of God, we call to mind our Bibles, the written revelation of God, a love letter written by God to His beloved children. This image of the written word is actually only partially true. In fact, to achieve the fullest meaning of the word, word, is to realize what St. John was telling us. That Jesus Christ, the God-man, was the Word, the very breath of God sent to heal us, to nourish us, and to reconcile us to Him forever. To be sure, then, recognizing the true identity of the Word of God has great implications when it comes to the Catholic teaching of the Eucharist. To truly consume the Word of God, one must consume Jesus. In the sixth chapter of his Gospel, St. John offers an account in Jesus' life that has come to be known as the Bread of Life Discourse. In it, we hear Jesus tell his disciples time and time and time again that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He told them they must consume him, consume the Word of God. Many of those disciples called this a hard saying and refused to follow him any longer. If Jesus had meant this to be taken symbolically, he certainly would have called them back and told them that he was simply employing symbolism and speaking metaphorically. But that is not what he did. Instead, he let them leave, not because he no longer desired their company, but because they needed to know that he was speaking literally and prefiguring for us his true and very real presence in the Most Holy Eucharist. 
Let us not abandon our Lord like many of those early disciples, refusing to consume the word of God. But let us cling to the Eucharistic Jesus like Simon Peter, when asked if he too would leave, boldly proclaim, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I'm Bess Trzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And we're back in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff sitting here with Robert Hutton, and we're talking to Helen Alvarez. And Helen is a professor of law at George Mason University in Washington, D.C., and you specialize in family and religion, and so you have all these numbers in your head. <laughs> now, do you feel like really powerful when you walk around and you start spouting numbers and people bow <laughs> at your feet at the great information that you share, or do you like dole it out in a very quiet way? Oh, and- I wish. It's a little sadder than that. We, frankly, because the numbers that I know uh, are numbers that would support what the church is teaching in the area of human sexuality and the family, people will often pretend they don't exist. Oh, yeah. So, we're really at a point, I remember Richard John Newhouse used to say, you know, wouldn't the philosophes of the French Revolution be absolutely shocked when uh, they woke up in the 21st century and realized it was the Catholics defending reason? <laughs> yeah. And I would like to add to that that they'd be even more shocked to find the Catholics defending reality. You know, I mean, we're really at a point where, despite what I'm just about to tell you, people pretend that it just doesn't exist. So, for instance, you know, the church has taught that... I want to put it bluntly here. Sex is not tennis, right? Right. There is a reason that God put that together with the making of every single member of the human community. It matters. And, and, And so, therefore, it's not surprising that, you know, things like rape are so much more devastating than if somebody slaps you, right? Sex right. is goes to the core. And a level of intimacy. Yes. So it, we have always said that because of the weight that it was given by God, or even if you don't believe in God, by nature, right, itself, that it should be handled with great care. And we knew that when it was abused, particularly because of the woman's experience, her, her different uh, 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 neurobiology, um, her different hormonal experience, her different genetics on this, that the woman would suffer in a very particular way. And that the man would also suffer a little bit over the longer run right. from a lack of serious relationship. That the children would suffer because there was a reason God put sex at the intersection of the man and the woman and had a child needy for so long. Right. And a child who learns about women by playing off his mother and learns about men by modeling after his dad. Um, we know that if people aren't committed to commitment, that life is not always easy and it's hard to make your way through a long marriage in some cases. We know that abortion is traumatic and that women will suffer. We know these things. We've taught them. We also have observed human nature like other smart people in the world. Along comes the 1990s, after this vast experiment is really getting some steam, right? So the, the non-marital birth rate was 5% in 1960, 80, uh, or 18% in 1980. It's up to 33% by the 90s. Now we're up to 40%, okay? Cohabitation. We had half a million people doing it in the late 70s, 80s. Now we have, I don't know, 9 million people. Divorce rates were like 10 and 11%. Then they went up to over 50% in the 80s. Now they're a little below the 50 
50% rate. And now we look at the data. So we find that uh, Sarah McClanahan at Princeton, who really doubted that children really could suffer so much without a mother and a father, ends up finding that uh, that a great deal of children suffering um, who do not have a mother and a father together in marriage comes from that. We look at Sweden, which has, because of government programs, equaled marital and non-marital families to within 3% financially of one another. Wow. So there are biological cohabiting parents parents, and then you have biological married parents, you're still seeing the same pathologies in the children who are living with both biological parents but who are not married to one another. Their outcomes are more like the parents who still are have single issues. parents. Yes. Mm. Commitment between the man and the woman that brings about the child, turns out it matters. We find out that with cohabitation, that not surprisingly because of women's different sexual makeup and our ability to have children, that women don't like it. But they do it because it's now become the price of our relationship that might mature into marriage. And so even among Catholics, we find 50, 55 percent, not among practicing Catholics, but among people who take the Catholic label, cohabiting before marriage. But even those cohabiting couples have even a greater chance of divorce later, right? Well, here's what's interesting. Yeah, cohabitation is the number two predictor of divorce. The first predictor is marrying under age 20. The second predictor is if you moved in together without a ring on her hand. Now, it's interesting. People who are engaged and then cohabit, their rate of divorce is about the same as the general public. Okay. It's not as good as practicing Catholics, but it's as good as the general public. People who kind of are testing it out with the theory that they're going to find out whether this works... It turns out that in part there's some selection bias, right? There are people who probably were not predisposed to commitment in the first place. But then there's also a causal effect. And you find out that once they, they're living in a relationship that looks and feels like marriage in every way but commitment, and then they think, yeah, but I can break it and there's no repercussions, um, it turns out that that does sort of prime them for failure right. in, in either that relationship or later. Interestingly, we find that, you know, because women don't like cohabitation, in populations that have sort of a shortage of women compared to men, cohabitation is more rare. Women insist on marriage. Mm-hmm. Vice versa, cohabitation is more common. So we know all these things. We you know said these we know things. this, we know this, we know this. Uh, let me just add one more that's oh, a stunner, and yeah. then I'll stop. Janet Yellen, okay, our Fed Reserve chairwoman, she and her husband, the Nobel Prize winning economist George Akerlof, wrote a very famous piece in the 1996 Journal of Quarterly Economics. And it predicted that the rise of government birth control and abortion programs would lead to, wait for it, more unintended pregnancy, more abortion, more out of wedlock births, and a retreat from marriage. And what do we have? Yeah. A sex mating and marriage market in which women feel they have to have sex as the price of a relationship. When she's pregnant, it's, well, out of wedlock pregnancy is no shame, or you can have an abortion. So, hey, shotgun marriage, as it used to be called, has disappeared, and we have now a 40% out of wedlock birth rate. In fact, higher than 50% of women under 30. And is there any sign that that's going down, or is no. that continuing to go up? It's, it's stayed pretty much the same for quite a while. And what's okay. happened is it's gone down among teens uh, the birth rate, but partly that's because teens aren't marrying anymore, right? right? We used to have right. teen births in part because teens were marrying at 19, but it has unbelievably shot up among women who are in their 20s and 30s, and it has nothing to do with every woman on the planet in the United States, in particular not knowing about Okay, so now we know all these things, and, and we know as, as women don't like 
a lot of these things or most of these things. So the question then becomes, why do we keep doing it? Why do people ignore the numbers? Why do yeah. they not want to even talk and act like the numbers don't exist? In fact, they'll go and they'll do a bald-faced lie and say, none of this is true. Or that's some kind of wacky right-wing right. Alvarez, whatever, funded program. Right. We don't want to believe those numbers. Yeah. Do we have an answer? Yeah. Uh, we, we don't. Um, we have several things. We have... A marketplace forces here, right, where yeah. every woman that sort of gives in to the idea that she has to lower the price of sex in order to jump into the relationship market then changes the, the, the effect. The, in yeah. economics, they call these bandwagon effects or tipping points, uh, prisoner's dilemma. Every woman is in a one-to-one conversation with a man who says, listen, honey, you know what? If we haven't progressed to sleeping together, then this can't go on. And it would be in her interest to go to all the other women and say, okay, all of you hold right. out. Right. <laughs> but because she's in a one-on-one, it's what economics calls the prisoner's dilemma. And then, of course, we also have this gigantic voice of entertainment industry, media, et cetera, who even the government now, the Obama administration in their briefs on the HHS mandate is saying free contraception so that a woman can have sex before, during, or after marriage is the key to her social and economic equality. They even put out advertisements, um, the Obamacare campaigns in Colorado, for a woman holding up a pack of pills saying, I hope he's as easy to get as these birth control pills. He's hot. With these two unmarried, you know, 20-something. So even the government's in on the act that says sexual expression is... Your whole freedom and happiness. Okay, so now I want to go back. I want to go back to the very beginning of our show, and you had a little air of, there was a little hope and mm-hmm. a little happiness yes. in your voice, and that's where we need to go now, because okay. this sounds very depressing, but the reality <laughs> is we can get in front of this, can't we? Yeah, well, here's a couple of things. Number one, we do have the truth on our side, and when I give talks, and I talk about women's feelings about these and what we need to do, I am not kidding. I will have three to 500 college women lined up to chat with me. Afterwards, Amazing. They know it's true. Number two, I wrote a little letter saying that religious freedom supports women's freedom and that religion is our friend as women, and here's why. I sent it to 30 women, and without my doing another thing, 45,000 women signed on, and we formed a website and a movement called womenspeakforthemselves.com. Our message, our, our motto is empowering local intelligence. Mm. I send women stuff about the law, about the culture. I say, Vanity Fair's got a stupid article. Go tell them, girls. Mm. And these women take it on. And they do it where they live. They write editorials. They organize stuff in their parishes. And we are just getting going. That's beautiful. Now, where can we get information, all these stats and stuff? I know that you've been quoting a lot of stuff. A lot of people say, she just made that up. Now, womenspeakforthemselves.com. Please sign in, join it. We send about every two weeks, we just send you information and say, go use it. Also, ssrn.com, socialscienceresearchnetwork.com is where I publish my academic papers. Helen Alvarez, we have so much more we could talk about. We have no more time. I want to have you again so we can talk about the hope and the, and the, the future. The hope stuff. Yeah, the <laughs> hope stuff, the, the, the good stuff that can come down the pike. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We're going to ask for our ladies' uh, intercession uh, on, on, this, on this troubled world we live in. In the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary. Full Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to 
Deacon Jeff at thecatholiccafe.com. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table. <laughs>